Welcome. You are listening to The Mindful Minute, meditations created for everyday joy. I'm your host, Meryl Arnett, and my passion is making meditation accessible and enjoyable. This podcast is recorded from my live Monday night meditation class, where we have a brief discussion followed by a guided meditation. If you would like to access these meditation practices as standalone audio files for your daily practice, please subscribe to my newsletter at merylarnett.com. It's free and you'll receive a new mini meditation each week, along with behind the scenes content and bonus material for each podcast episode. All right, let's grab a cup of tea, a comfy seat, and settle in for today's practice. Hello, my friends. Welcome to today's episode of The Mindful Minute. So I have actually just finished recording the most fun conversation. I am so excited to share it with you today. I am talking with mama, world-renowned yoga teacher and author, Sarah Ezrin. Sarah has written a new book, The Yoga of Parenting. It comes out on June 6th. And we are coming together today to talk about parenting being the most advanced practice, the reason that we get on the yoga mat or the meditation cushion. And we're going to talk about stepping into summer and our routines going up into the air. School is out. You know, we have all these random breaks. Our days look different. We're in the middle of a series about having a stress-free summer. And I think Sarah's book is an incredible tool for us. So Sarah and I talk a lot about how we both came to the realization that these practices, being on the meditation cushion, being on the yoga mat, support our parenting in a way that we deeply need. You know, I know you guys know that my personal mantra for practice is patience, presence, kindness. And as you'll hear in the interview, Sarah works with patience, presence, acceptance. Like these threads are so so personal and so universal at the same time. So we talk about how we practice in the summer. We talk about postures that make a difference for us as parents. Um, We invent a new description for one, reclining mountain. I'm really, really digging the visual of reclining mountain as a parenting technique. We talk about fierceness and being in the fire of really difficult, intense, or chaotic moments. And we talk about like the realities of our practice as parents. And sometimes I think it can be so valuable to hear from other parents like, yeah, things are chaotic. It's not the same every day. It's not a magical two-hour practice every day that we read about in a book. It's real life. And it's bringing these practices alive for ourselves, for our families, so that we feel grounded, connected, and compassionate towards ourselves and our kids. I hope you love the conversation. I had a blast with it. Um, And I want to highlight that at the end, and I'll tell you now too, Sarah gave us a discount code, which is so nice. So her book, The Yoga of Parenting, comes out on June 6th. And if you order it through Shambhala Publications, the link will be in the show notes, and you use code YP30, you save 30% on the book. It's a great summer read. It's easy. There's a lot of stories from parents from all over. So it's fun to get to see how other parents are incorporating this work into their parenting and their self-care, their postures to try, their reflections for you and your family. There's a summary at the end of every chapter. So if you get too busy, you can just skip to the end and get the goods. So all that being said, I hope you love the conversation. Let it be fun. Let it be stress-free and let it support your summer. Sarah, I am so happy to get to chat with you today. Thank you for taking some time. Thank you, Meryl. This is like, you were high on my list and like you were, it was a dream to sit with you. So getting to sit here feels very surreal and real at the same time. So thank you for having me. 
I love that. Thank you. Um, you know, I'll tell you, it's really funny. I, every once in a while I'll get a book and I'll read it and I'll be like, this person and I were meant to be friends. And I had that <laughs> feeling with you, which is funny. I can always tell because my prep is very different for somebody that I'm like, oh, we're just going to talk. Like, it'll be fine. We'll just talk. And some people I'm like, I need some questions. I need to be prepared, but I want to read this quote. So, you know, if you get, I got a little advanced preview copy of your book, The Yoga of Parenting. And inside it comes like a little marketing sheet, right? It's got like a little write-up about what the book is and your bio and all that. And this is the quote that they pulled out of the book. I have been meditating for nearly 30 years and practicing asana, the physical practice for over 20. And I can say without a doubt that the most advanced yoga I have ever done is raising children. And I was like, well, she knows me. <laughs> because that has been my exact experience. And I'd love to maybe start with a little bit about your version of that, that experience of practicing yoga, meditating, and becoming a parent. Mm. It's so funny. I'm like, is everyone doing the math? So, you know, it's like, wait, 30 years. I started meditating when I was 12. Uh, it was a, it was a technique that a therapist had taught me. So mm. I had started meditating on her couch. Um, I have generalized anxiety disorder. I've had it my whole life and it was incredibly powerful for somebody who was constantly in fear and constantly in the future to do these visualization meditations, like, and I was like a kid too. So, you know, she would have me lie down and then we'd do like, like almost like yoga nidra, which I now know is yoga nidra, but I didn't know what it was at the time. Um, and then when I came into like doing the physical practice, it was like, wait, okay, all these things, you know, they go together. But of course, being someone who is highly anxious and coming from a background, you know, with, I have, you know, histories of addiction and eating, obsessive eating. I channeled all that into obsessive yoging <laughs> and obsessive chaturangas and obsessive, like must practice for two hours a day, must do this, must do that. And everything was so regimented to the point that I wasn't even dating. Like, you know, I always joked that the date would be, you have to meet me after my class. You have 10 minutes to stand in line at Starbucks with me while I get my coffee to impress me. And then maybe maybe I will go to dinner with you. Maybe I will risk <laughs> being tired the next day for my practice. But you know, there was a, it's a much longer story, but I, obviously I met my husband, things changed. I got, I moved up to San Francisco and suddenly we were on the path to becoming parents. And the second I got pregnant the first time, my, everything was out of control. Mm. And in the most beautiful and profound and challenging of ways. And I was like, whoa, this really is the practice because I can align my way into a chaturanga, you know, or I don't know why I keep using chaturanga as an example. I think just because my background in Ashtanga yoga, but a chaturanga is like that half plank for the listeners that don't know, but you know, you can align yourself in down dog. You can align yourself in, in a standing posture. It becomes a container for your attention. But when you step on that that wheel, you know, or that it's like even just a long conveyor belt to, to who knows where of parenting, it, it, there is nothing that is holding you on either side. You are at the whim of the universe and at the whim of other people's karma and other people's emotions and other people's, you know, futures. And it's just this wild ride that there's no predictability. And I, I, I mentioned it in the book, um, but you know, I lo we lost our first pregnancy, and I think that was the big that was the rattle that really was like you know that was like okay you know here we go this is where the work begins and then from getting pregnant with my first and now I'm the mom of two and it's just gotten harder. <laughs> that is it, but but also more beautiful at the same time. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I, you know, I'll share just a little bit about it. My experience, which was you know, in many ways very similar, and I was a hot yoga teacher. I taught 6am. I was like that type A per, you know, I was up at the studio all the time drinking my green juice. And I was sure that I was going to be the pregnant person teaching 6am yoga and drinking my green juice. And I was so sick. My first pregnancy, so sick and the whole pregnancy, the whole time, not just the beginning. And I was, I remember so clearly sitting in the back of that hot yoga room, drinking Sprite out of a water bottle, hoping nobody noticed 
and eating saltine crackers while I taught. And I was like, I have hit rock bottom. What is happening to me? So that was step one. And then step two was this little person came into my life. And as he became a person, right, as he started exhibiting his own personhood, I was like, I had no idea I could get this angry. Where did this anger even come from? I thought I am like doing my yoga and my meditation and I'm fine all the time. And so that was the moment where I was like, oh, this is what I'm practicing for. So as I picked up your book and I was reading, and it's so beautiful, you have a pose for each chapter and a theme that sort of carries through each chapter. And I just, I was there for the ride the whole time. I was like, oh, I see that. Or I can feel how that connects to all of these, you know, parenting is all the things all the time. Right. And these poses just, it really, I could feel the connection in your book. It was beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I think a a big part as you, you read in the book is like, it's not even just my story. It was the weaving together of all these different parents' stories like that, you know, was the coolest part. And I think that's what really kind of tied it together is that we're all the same, right? Like, you know, we're, we could live in totally different parts of the country. We could vote entirely differently. We could, you know, be entirely different, you know, on the surface, but then when it comes down to it, parenting is that great equalizer. And so talking to all these different parents from all over and, you know, different identities and, you know, different amounts of children and, you know, children coming into their lives by totally different reasons and different means. And yet all of us, have that same intention, you know, which is to be connected and is to be the, you know, more even place, but that we also all get angry and we also all freak out, you know, and we also all lose it at times, which is all, you know, part of it. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question, which is, you know, I think if we look at a lot of the sort of wisdom traditions across time, the emphasis had really been renunciation. It had really been, I'm not going to follow the family life. I'm not going to own a home or have a job. I'm going to step out of that to do these practices. And because that's the case in so many places, I mean, not everywhere, definitely in Tantra and some places we hear stories of householders. But because that's the case in such a majority, it's re- I think it's very easy to look at practices like yoga and meditation and say, well, that's not for me while I have little, I'll do that when my kids are grown. I'll do that when I have the space and the time. And what I see in your work is you calling for like, this is the space and time. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that little sort of mental shift that you're asking us to make. Yeah, I mean, I think I had that misconception for a very long time. And and it's also the lineages under which we studied. So personally, uh, my teachers came from Krishnamarchaya's lineage. You know, I came from the Ashtanga yoga tradition. My teacher was a student of Sri K. Patabi Joy. Um, you know, and she started our studio because I started at Yoga Works um, with a student of BKS Iyengar. So it was very much from this one source and a lot of the studies were based on Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. And, you know, much of that was about kind of, it's, it's, there is, it's definitely a guidebook for living, but there's also this implication at times that you are trying to realize this state that is, you know, all encompassing and, you know, ever immersive, the Samadhi state, which is not a state that you're like living and actually part of the world in, right? It's, it's renunciation, and brahmacharya which i listened to one of your recent podcasts on you know which is you know the sexual management of energy like in other words don't procreate don't even like you know have a relationship all that stuff was promoted because spirituality and your practice was elevated but when i started to dig in and do the research for the book I I talked to people from the tantric tradition that were like stop looking at everything through this one lens Look at yoga from the much bigger picture. There's all these different lineages that come out of the Vedas. And a lot of this was created as a roadmap for householders. Now, there are obviously groups of people who, you know, they, they're in the student stage, right? Where, where it's like young, young children, uh, it was most, you know, there was a predominance of males in those days. So I did some research and found that, that women were being taught to, and actually wrote some of the, were believed to write some of the Vedas. 
Um, but that the the young guys would then, you know, they'd be like 12, 13, they would study with their teacher and then they'd just jump ahead to the wisdom stage. They would jump ahead to the sannyasa. They would jump ahead to, to renunciation. But that was just a portion of them. That wasn't the path for everybody. Obviously, society needed to be thriving. And, and, and the other majority of them would then, you know, it would go from student stage, learning with your teacher, into the householder stage. And that's what we are all in. So it's like, I think we, you know, we, we keep thinking of like, and maybe it's just our Western approach, you know, and, and like, you know, that's why like, I, I didn't write anything about the history of there. Like, who am I to share about that? But I, you know, it's this idea of like the jumping ahead to the most spiritual moment, right? <laughs> like that there is a path to get there. And that seems like appealing. And I think what people think is like the most advanced, but really when you look at everyday life, you know, that, that it's actually, you have to go through each of the stages. You have to be the young kid learning and making your mistakes. You then have to be in the young adulthood to early, you know, midlife beyond midlife to be creating your family and, and learning your lessons there. Then you become the wisdom or grandparent stage, right? Where you're starting to do hands off a little more interest in the, the spiritual realm, but still part of the everyday physical, then you enter that wisdom state. So it's like really, and, and they're called the four ashramas, right? They're the stages of life. And again, I'm not an expert. You should bring, you know, somebody who has Southeast, you know, who is from Southeast Asia or has um, that culture to, to share about it. But that's the idea, you know, is like that there are different stages. I mean, and we see it, we see it in the Western world too. Um, but how do we find the holiness in all of them? Yeah, it's, you know, I, there is, I think it can be very easy to say like, here's the ideal and this is the life I'm living. And if only I could get here, then I would be so peaceful or wise or whatever. And what I see in, in your work and what I feel in these practices that we do is that it's really, a, it's not about creating this perfect life. It's just about saying, actually, I'm right where I'm supposed to be. Like, this is the practice. This is the heart of it right here. I, you know, I noticed um, something interesting. So the, another, this is like also from the little promo page. So funny. I know you from this page. I haven't um, even seen that page, by oh, the way. <laughs> I, I'll email it to you. They, yeah. It's great. They did a great job. Whoever did it did <laughs> They a great did a job. great job. Yeah. And it says, this is like the little subheading on the page. Mom and yoga teacher, Sarah Ezrin offers 34 practices to find more presence, patience, and acceptance with your child and with yourself. And what jumped out at me is, and listeners will recognize this, you know, the mantra that I created for myself as a parent within my meditation practice for years, for eight years now, my son's eight, every day is patience, presence, kindness. And so when I read that, I was like, that's so interesting that your words are patience, presence, and acceptance, which I actually see a lot of relationship to kindness in. And so I want, I thought maybe we would talk a little bit about those qual like why are those the qualities that we're calling on? Why are those the pieces that as parents were like, this is what I need to get through my day to be the parent I want to be? Well, I think the the big part of that that I really wanted to hone in on was the self-kindness of it. That it wasn't like so that we're gonna be kind to our children. I think like that's you know, you, you presume and, and you hope, but obviously, you know, they, then you have a terrorist of a, of a toddler <laughs> and a teenager and it's like, oh. but the, but it really is, it was that final piece. I wanted to, I was reading all these books that were making me feel terrible about myself. I mean, that was really like the origin of it, you know, and I couldn't find anything that was really from our lineage. There was a lot of mindful parenting, which is more from the Buddhist perspective and I was like, well, you know, where's the book that's giving us the same permission that I find when I step on my mat and my down dog is much tighter than it was the day before, you know, or the kindness that I hear from my teachers and the people that I study under where, where was that? And so that was a really, really important piece to this book. How are we kind to ourselves first? What do we do to, and, and, you know, it's, it's that idea of being present with ourselves first, being patient with ourselves first, then we can share those qualities with the people that we love. 
But it's only until we give those things to ourselves or we cultivate those qualities within that we are even able to, you know, act in the same way towards others. So that was a huge, huge part of it. You know, I was probably not even really answering your question, but it was like, it was just, it was a part that I wanted to highlight and hone. And yeah, I mean, you know, like that, that's what I needed the most of, right. Was like cutting the guilt, owning those moments of quiet time and solitude for, you know, filling myself up, get, you know, just really doing what I need to do in certain moments, even if it means eating first and people are crying, going to the bathroom first, you know, which I know sounds, you know, as the mom of young kids, but it's like, sometimes you have to make that choice. You know, people are crying and it's bedtime, but you got to take care of yourself in that moment. That was the, that's the kind choice so that I can then show up and be patient and present. Yeah. Yeah. I really hear that. And it, you know, it's interesting because I, I, all of these qualities have so many layers to them. Right. And it's, I think it can be really easy to be like, oh, I am so patient until it's tested in a way that it hadn't been tested before. I think that's true even as our children age, right? You're like, the minute you think, oh, I got this phase down, your kids change. And you're like, well, what is this new crisis that I'm dealing with now? And and so those uh, that ability to pull that kindness in for yourself, because you're learning too, right? We're learning too as parents every day how to parent these little beings in the world that are not mirrors of ourselves necessarily. They're their own beings. You So each chapter has a yoga pose. It starts with a pose. And the first pose is constructive rest. It's Shavasana, which would typically be the last pose in a yoga class. Why are we starting there? Well, I... I, it is constructive rest. We are starting on the floor, but it's not Shavasana, right? Like, so I, and I do do Shavasana towards the end. And the reason that I, I, and it's the same. So when I do start a class and people are lying completely prone, okay. So constructive rest, you're lying on the floor, your feet are on the ground, your knees are together. But even if I'm starting my classes where people are lying flat on the floor in what we would traditionally call Shavasana, I always call it Supta Tadasana instead. And the reason that is, is because I, it's, it's the energy and the intention of what we're doing in that opening posture. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't, you know, there is that idea of getting still, getting low to the ground, you know, being in yourself. There is a rebirth element as the practice begins. Sure. But I'm always careful not to say Shavasana until it really is the end, because then that is the the death of that practice. Does that make sense? It does. So tell listeners, Supta Tadasana is, has a very different meaning. What does that mean? So, okay. So Tadasana is, is standing in mountain pose where, you know, you're, it's, it's just a very conscious, intentional stand. You know, your arms are by your sides. Tadasana means mountain. Anytime you hear the word Supta in front of a pose, it, it means supine. It means to recline. So when you have someone lying on your back, like you're, you would to go take a nap or like you do at the end of, of most, you know, yoga classes, which we call Shavasana, I, when I'm writing out my sequences and how I teach it in my teacher trainings is that let's, you know, this is actually not the energy of Shavasana because we're not just, and it's not, the other thing with Shavasana is that it is a, it's an immersive connection, right? It is like the, you are melted into the floor. Every part of you is cracked open. It is that moment of samadhi that we all seek that we talked about earlier. It is that moment of, you know, just omnipresent connection that we talked about, you know, spirit, some spiritual seekers and some texts like laud as like the goal, but obviously you can't like live your life like that, right? Like who's going to like <laughs> feed you. But in the beginning of practice, it's it's different, right? In the beginning of practice, it's it's really hard to drop into that immediately. In the beginning of practice, it's almost like you're having to disconnect from everything around you to tune in to what's happening within. So I I try to differentiate those two. Um, you know, I think that like now that being said, starting on the floor and ending on the floor, I think is also really powerful too, because it's like you are kind of starting in a shape that's the same, but you've gone through this big journey. Right. That was a very long answer. <laughs> no, it was a great answer. And I've never, I've never heard slash use the term Supta Tadasana, which I'm now 
completely obsessed with because that visual of, I mean, I know reclining isn't quite right, but that's what I'm envisioning. So I'm going to use it reclining mountain, like that strength and softness. And I know you also highlight this quite a bit in the book, but that strength and softness together is what we're calling forth. Yeah. I like reclining mountain. I think you can call it, call it whatever. It's a synonym. Right? <laughs> I know. It's, all the right. it's just a good, I, I can see that. I'm like, yeah, I want to be a reclining mountain. That's who I want to be as a parent. And I hadn't even thought about that part of it too, which is like, yeah, I mean the, that like there is the softness on the bottom and then the, I like that Meryl. See? Okay. This see, is, yeah. here we go. Creating something <laughs> new. I love it. Well, let's talk about some of the other poses in the book. Like what are some poses that we can call in and the qualities embodied within them that we might call in for ourselves as parents? So I'm laughing because one of the poses is chair pose. And the original vision of the book was that every chapter was actually going to start with a story about uh, somebody that I had interviewed and their story ended up getting woven in a little bit because the publishers like, you know, they, they moved mine up front, which is lovely. Um, But my original intent was like, let's showcase all my friends. But part of that was going to be that I wanted a picture of them in each of the poses. So I assigned chair pose. (laughs) to the chapter on tapas, which is all about challenge and transformation through hard times. And the person I assigned it to literally, like we never talk on the phone. I sent him an email and he called me and it's like, why, why is this my phone? And I was like, that's why, because your whole chapter is about you know, facing the challenge as gracefully as you can, you know, finding the breath when everything is trying to take it away from you and coming out the other side way more yourself than you could have ever imagined. So chair pose is one of them, you know, and, uh, and do you want me to go further on that one or just name another one? Well, so tell me if I'm remembering correctly, but I think I remember like one of the themes within that chapter on chair pose was you referenced that it can be translated as fierce pose, correct? Mm. Is that right? Yeah. And so that embodiment of fierceness, which is interesting. Again, it's like, here we are with so much paradox and everything we talk about, but you know, you're like, oh, gentle parenting is the thing. And, and it can be easy to think that there's no fierceness in, in that current trend of parenting. And yet we're calling forth fierceness for ourselves. Yeah. And, and like, again, I, and would I, would I be fair to say you're like, you like a love words or you a little bit, I'm a word I nerd. Do. So I like, love okay, words. I could tell, all right. I was like, okay, we really are. <laughs> we'll, we'll stay after and, and have tea. Um, I think with, that's the thing with fierceness, right. Is like, so what fierceness, ferocity can sometimes get misconstrued, even anger itself. But often ferocity is associated with anger, which is then associated with negativity, right? We, we assume automatically that anger is a bad thing and we don't ever want to be angry. But we forget that ferocity and anger are necessary basic human emotions that help to create change. And that can be actually quite empowering and also saving, right? They could be evolutionarily like, you know, fighting back is actually important in certain situations. If I'm being chased by something, you know, or, um, you know, these days it's, you know, there's many, many reasons, but ferocity is also, that's an energy forward. That's like, to me, anger can be about facilitating and alchemizing change. So, you know, I think we hear ferocious, we hear anger, and we automatically assume negative, but we have to remember that, like, we need that fire, we need that spark in order for anything to start to alchemize and to change. Mm, I love that. And I think I, I was thinking about this this morning. So last night was, was a tough night. My son had had a tough day at school. He had a lot of emotion about it. And, you know, at least for me personally, witnessing my child experience big emotion that I can neither take away nor fix is one of the hardest things for a parent. Like all I want to do is jump in there and be like, let me fix this for you. And I know that I can't. And so as I think about fierceness, a piece of that is for me, like the fierceness for me to be like, 
you're strong enough to sit here and do this, right? And that actually, now that I'm saying this out loud over and over again, I I have felt this as a parent. It's like, sometimes I have to say to myself, like, you're strong enough. You do not have to leave this moment. And a piece of that comes from all of those minutes on the yoga mat, all of those minutes on the meditation cushion when I was like, man, I'm bored or this is hard or I'm tired and I want to go and I didn't. And then we're asked as parents, like, I know you're tired, but you got to stay right here right now. Yeah. I mean, I was just like, I just had like the vision of you in there and then like the talking to yourself. I mean, it, it really is all of that, right? It, it, it is the, so, so it's on the chapter that, that discusses tapas, which the, the literal translation is fire, but the concept of tapas is this idea of purification through heat that through fire, we are not necessarily transformed because there's some some scholars say transformation uh, is is not necessarily the goal. It's not that you're becoming something different, but that the fire is burning away all the layers of who we think we are to get to what we truly are. But the fire is uncomfortable. That process is burning. There is a sense of austerity and there is a sense of heat behind it. So you know, in relation to what you know with your son, for example sitting in the discomfort of his emotions, riding that out with him, perhaps hopefully, you know, 10 years down the road will lead to a much more integrated relationship with the two of you, him being able to sit with his own emotions, you know, entering college in this way where you're, you know, connected, but also that there's, there's that right amount of space, like that it leads to something in the end, but in the moment, let's acknowledge that it's, very hard. I was going to say an expletive that it's very hard (laughs) and it's very uncomfortable and it's burning. And that's that moment where we have to go back to all of our practices, which is, you know, what we're practicing on the mat. Exactly. Like you said, when you're sitting in meditation or you're holding warrior two or you're doing chair pose, you know, all of that is really prepped for these moments of life that are incredibly uncomfortable. And all you want to do is rip out of your skin and get out of them. But going through them is how we then, you know, metamorphosize and and get to the other side, whatever those gains and benefits may be. We don't know yet, you know? Mm, Yeah. And I think, so you said warrior two, this is another posture in the book, right? And it might even be one that follows fierce pose or very close to, if I remember correctly. Um, So warrior two, big, strong, confident pose. What are we embodying here? I used warrior two to exemplify the idea of balance. And specifically the idea that balance is and boundaries are really, it's a combination of the strength, but you also need the softness that yes, warrior two appears to be this very strong, you know, we'll we'll use fierce again. That's like fierce type of pose, but really in order for a warrior two to be sustainable, you need an element of softness. You need fluidity and breathability. So you're always kind of toggling back and forth between the container and, you know, the space that's within the container. And so I felt like warrior two was a good one for that, but really it's ultimately about that balance of boundaries. Mm. And I think this is a chapter um, where you talk a bit about being an overachiever and being a parent. I clearly (laughs) just don't relate to that at all, Sarah. I have no idea what that means. Um, no, I felt that very deeply. And I, it's, that's an interesting place to, to yoga from and to parent from or to meditate from. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's, it is, I'm just like looking around the house and like, I like every time I like have to stay like this watching you. I like put like blinders for people listening because the overachiever in me wants to fold that blanket over there, put this over there. Then I have to go do this. Then I have to go do that. It is this endless ticker of having to have everything in its right place that I don't know if you feel this way, but like, it's almost like in my brain, I'm like, oh, well, once this is done, then I can settle, but there's never, (laughs) it's never ending. It's never ending. And, you know, and then you, you run the risk of pouring that into your children. And I have to say, and again, like, you know, talk to me, I'm knocking on wood, talk to me again in another four years, but I have to say, I feel better about being a little more hands off with my son's like choices than I do with my own 
approach to life. So like what I mean by that is like he wants to wear rain boots on a sunny day. I'm fine with that. You know, he wants to climb something that seems a little scary. You know, I will be holding my breath the whole time, but I will stand at the base. You know, he wants to explore doing something. I'm I, you know, with my toddler specifically now. I I say talk to me in four years because my youngest is a lot wilder. (laughs) So I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to like have that same, you know, space and trust. We shall see. I'm trying. I really am. (laughs) Uh, But he literally is like going headfirst off the the bed still, you know, and it's like, I'm like, oh gosh, this is how he's going to approach life. But, you know, we're with me personally, everything is still very kind of regimented. Like, you know, I still need my schedule. I still need things in a certain order. I am still striving most hours of the day. So it's, uh, you know, I don't want to put that on them, but it, it, it's definitely like within the home. You know, I try I try not to. Luckily, my husband is very, you know, chill and there's a good balance of energy. But uh, but yeah, we'll see when they get a little bit older and then the grades you know, matter a little more. And, but I don't want to be that. Like, I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't want to be a great enforcer and I don't want to push my workaholism on them, you know, in that way. But, you know, this is, it's all of our paths unfolding. It is. We're all here to learn some lessons. So I got to kind of trust that. So let's, let's keep following this thread. I think Um, (laughs) this, this conversation is going to air at the end of May and in Georgia school will already be out. I know that's not the case for everywhere. A lot of places get out a little later, but in Georgia, we get out like mid-May it's horrible. And so summer will be in full force. And actually the series that I'm releasing at that time is called stress-free summer specifically because I am routine regimented. I'd like to know that I have like these hours set aside to do these specific tasks. And then I switch gears and now I'm doing something parenting wise. And in summer, all that goes out the window. And one of the things I have noticed over a decade of practice is that if I am not mindful, my practice goes out the window because I'm like, well, now we don't have this. When do, when do I do it? So I'd love to ask you a little bit about just your own personal, like, when do you practice? Do you practice around your kids? Do you practice separately? Like, tell me a little bit about that experience for you. Oh, there's, I like want to go into summer. I was like, okay, well, like, let's go into summer. Let's well, talk we about could do that too. for summer. Please, come on, let's but, do it. <laughs> uh, well, I don't, this is our first summer. I was going to ask you, because uh, like, this is our <laughs> first time. We just, we just got the schedule and they're like, oh, school ends on the second. And I, and I wrote, I was like, when does this camp start? They're like the 18th or something. And I, my husband and I were like, oh no, we're not what prepared we for do? this at all. <laughs> Um, so yeah, so, you know, maybe offline or after you or all, I just will wait for the series and listen to all of your tips. Um, my practice currently is, you know, it's, I'm definitely more into meditation these days, you know, and like harder workouts, like, and I don't mean harder, like physically more challenging. I mean, yeah, maybe I do mean physically more challenging, but like, I want my yoga mat to be the most nourishing, softest, yummiest place that I go to, to just feel good in my body. It used to be where I would go to punish myself for what I ate and where I would go and force change. So whether it was being jammed into poses or, you know, I'd have like goals and then I like, you know, must have this, uh, my yoga practice just isn't, isn't that anymore. So I do, uh, I wake up very early in the morning. I do a really long sit and I journal and I have my tea and that's all part of my practice. And then if I do go to the yoga mat that day, it's, it's just a lot more like close to the floor, a lot more kind of revolutions, you know, moving in circles and things like that stuff. I, I just, that's just not what I was raised doing. I was raised very classical uh, yoga traditions and um, just really gently. And then if I want to go get, you know, sweat, if I want to get my workout on, I'll go to like, you know, a spin class or something like I'll hike outside or something that's a little bit more like out there, but I'm doing it with the intention of, you know, getting my heart rate up and getting my energy levels up, not from a place of punishment, which is, you know, what I had done. I'd been channeling all that into yoga. So it's a, I think it's a good blend. It feels much healthier. Now there's days where I don't, I don't move my body and that's perfectly fine. There's days where it's just a little bit of like shoulders and yoga. There's days where it's just meditation. Like it, it just, it's kind of all over the place, but I try to do a little something every day. 
If I had to describe my practice, I would say almost the exact same words. (laughs) I love that. So what do you do for cardio then? I, so I have a Peloton bike right over here off the camera. So I spin, but truthfully, more honestly, I walk like I'm a walker. I love to walk. There's a trail very close to my house. So I go out in the woods as many days as I can. And it's one of the things. So this is interesting because I'm going to talk about it in the series is like what would normally happen during the school year is both of my children are in school by 9am and at 901 i'm on the trail and that's like that's how my day quote unquote begins after the craziness of getting the children off and i go do a long hike and i meditate and i come back to the house it takes about 90 minutes and then i start working and that is you know 3 to 4 days a week my schedule in the morning during the school year and i don't get to do that during the summer because like my partner has to work too. And I can't just disappear for two hours every single day while the kids are at home. And walking with kids is very different than walking by yourself. And so, you know, I think a piece, the 25 year old Meryl would never be okay with that practice disappearing for 12 weeks. And now I really spend time Now, when you and I are talking, which is in April, the kids are still in school saying to myself, like, this is about to change. What are you going to feel like? What are you going to replace it with? Or how are you going to take care of yourself when you can't go two hours in the woods? You know, and so I that what you said about every day is a little different. And I think the piece that I try to be aware of is what am I doing to take care of myself? And it doesn't have to look the same every day. So for me, like the meditation is the non-negotiable. I know I will sit every day, but the yoga and the walks, they'll become a little more sporadic and they'll likely have children tagging along. So they'll feel different, but it's just going to be part of it. Yeah. I mean, you got to be really creative. It's it's e- much easier when they're babies and you can strap them to your chest and then they'll move at your pace. Fall asleep, right? Yeah. Right. You can go anywhere. Cause you know, that's, I, and even now my, my son is one and I still like strap, it's like his full, and he's huge. So <laughs> like, I've got this like five-year-old, it looks like strapped to me. I'm like, I promise he's one. But with the toddler, um, I, I you know, put him in something that he can like a, a scooter or something, but he can't hike with me. I can't, I can't do my hikes with him. <laughs> it's the same thing, but I just talked about this in an episode and I can't remember what episode it was. And I was like very recently. And I was saying like anybody who's hiked with the kids knows like, you know, some days, so my kids are eight and four and some days we make them walk a lot. And if they're, we catch them in the right mood, we can do a three mile trail. And they, I mean, it takes a while, but they can do it without complaining, without being carried. They're having a grand old time. And like literally the next day we won't be able to get out of the parking lot. Like we just won't. We have to collect sticks and rocks and stay. And and that's part of the practice too, right? But we experience that on our mat too. You know, it's like some days we get on the mat and you can do every pose and you feel really strong. And then there's other days where you get on and you're like, I'm just going to lie here, you know? So I think that that really is the, the advanced practice, right? Is that deeper listening of what the moment calls for. Mm, yeah. So Sarah, I wonder if you could maybe offer a little mini something for us, a pose that we could get into or some breaths we could take. What is a practice that you might offer us for? Let's think about summers in session. I don't have my routine. I can't fall back on the two hour, whatever luxurious practice. What can I do to take care of myself right now? I think one of the practices, and I offer this in the book, is the becoming the stealth anthropologist of your own life and that that can become a meditation practice in of itself. So really, and, and I'll talk us through it in a second, but just to give the gist of what it is, is, you know, sitting back and becoming an observer of all that you see around you so that you are grounding in the moment, you are completely plugged in, but you're also practicing the idea of non-attachment. You're not trying to influence anything. You're not trying to change anything. You're just simply taking in all that's in front of you and around you. That sounds awesome. So we'll do it you know, wherever you may be. And of course, if you're driving, please don't close your eyes, but you can absolutely do this driving and you can do this walking. And for those of you that are sitting, but don't like closing your eyes, all you need to do is start to get settled, whatever that means for you. So for some of us, it's stillness. 
for others, it's in motion. Your heart rate will tell you, your eyes will tell you, the corners of the eyes. What is something that feels settling for you positionally? And just take a full breath here. And a full exhale. And noticing that first, noticing without judgment. Like two more on your own. Just kind of where are you breathing? Without story, if it feels shallow or rushed. And how maybe just by simply watching it, one more, it's become to lengthen a little. And then those of you whose eyes were closed, we are gonna open the eyes and the soft gaze as you start to scan the room from one side to the next. And if there happens to be a living being in the room, and this can be a plant, a pet, a child, a partner, I want you to focus your eyes on that thing and make a choice. And then just sit back a little bit more into yourself, almost like the front of your body and the back of your body could come together. And for these next few breaths, because I know we don't have a ton of time, but you can always pause and do it longer. Just observe, what do you see? You can name colors and shapes. You can notice parts of movement or parts that are still. Parts that seem kissed by light and others that are in the darkness. And then as you take your next inhale, almost like you're breathing that thing in towards you. And exhale. And what's really cool as we do this watching, observing, is if it is a dog or a child, even if they're way across the room, our breaths can start to synchronize together. This gift, this is one of the universe's bounties for you, for simply being. And then you can go ahead and close your eyes. If your head was turned quite a bit, just bring it back so the chin's over the chest or simply turning the head and gazing down. One more deep breath in. Maybe open the mouth. Maybe make sound. And then as you're ready, you can reopen the eyes if they are closed. Take in the whole room and we'll rejoin back together. Thank you, Sarah. Beautiful. Such a pleasure to chat with you today. Listeners, there's so much about the book we didn't even get to talk to. I do want to highlight that at the end of each chapter, there are 10 takeaways for busy families. I'm like, clearly Sarah's actually a parent because sometimes we need a summary. It's lovely. There'll be a link in the show notes to the book. And Sarah, tell us where we can find more about you. Tell us anything that we didn't talk about that we want to cover um, before we wrap up. Well, I just want to say thank you for all that you do for parents everywhere. And I think, you know, I, you, I know you're teaching your meditation class as it is, but then to start recording it and to start sharing it to the world through this podcast format, it's such an important medium for reaching busy families because we don't really have time to be sitting down and reading. So, you know, I, I thank you for taking the time for you to sit down and to share your wisdom with all of us so that we can then be out in the world and, you know, with the madness and trying to cook and trying to hike with, you know, to a four-year-old, but still tapped into all of your amazing teachings and offerings. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you, Sarah. 
Um, I can be found. I'm, I'm most active probably on Instagram. Um, so it's Sarah Ezrin yoga. It's just Sarah Ezrin yoga. And then, uh, my website is Sarah Ezrin yoga.com. I am also on TikTok. I am starting that. Uh, so please, I, I just have fun over there. It's very different. My TikTok than my Instagram. It's like, literally like, what is this sweater? Like what is killing? You know? <laughs> Here's some tape to get dog hair off. It's not really, uh, I got to kind of like hone it in niche in with the rest of my stuff, but that's also like a nice break. And yeah, that's it. And then, you know, of course, please uh, grab a copy of the book. I, I We're going to be airing this end of May-ish, right? So you can pre-order the book. By the way, if anybody pre-orders the book, if you buy it before the launch date, which is June 6th, and you go to my website, you will get three free gifts, a meditation, a practice, and a whole book, a whole big book. So not a big book. I don't want to scare people. <laughs> it's, it's a, it's a cool book. It's the picture book of actually what I, I had, um, was hoping to have in the original book. So lots of, lots of incentives and yeah, yeah. And, and just, uh, and always send me a message if you have any questions and I'm, I love connecting It's my favorite part of what we get to do. Beautiful. And I think that we have a discount for listeners if they want the book, right? We do. We have a very special discount code. So if you are ordering the book, either pre-order or after launch, go to Shambhala's website. That's the publisher, Shambhala Publications. You'll order the book on there and you enter the code YP30, YP30. And then you go back to my site, upload your receipt and you get all your free gifts. Really easy. So you get 30% off the book. You get all these yeah. amazing gifts. So nice yes. of you. Thank you for yeah. that. Listeners, all those links and details will be in the show <laughs> notes. So if you're yeah. like, I want that, you will be able to find how to get that. Um, Sarah, thank you. So fun. So glad to meet a new best friend. I hope thank we can you. do it again. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Mindful Minute. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving me a review wherever you get your podcasts. This helps others to find the show. And let's face it, we could definitely use more meditators in this world. The Mindful Minute is recorded on Muskogee land and produced with the support of Madeline Day Production Management and Brianna Nielsen Virtual Assistance. To join my live classes, ask questions, or learn more about my teacher trainings, please visit MerrillArnett.com. Thanks again for listening. I'll see you guys next week.